Love is all you need, right? Love is all you need, right? True? Not true? Love is all you need. I could start singing, but I'm not going to, because then it wouldn't be true. Love is all you need. I'm more and more convinced the more I read the Bible, it's true. It's absolutely true. Love is all you need. From the very beginning, the very first human beings, their responsibility to God was that they would love Him. And their responsibility to each other was that they would love each other as fellow image bearers. That's why the Bible would say, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is all you need. If they would have truly loved God the way that would have been appropriate, everything would have gone well. Love is all you need. It's what we're called to do. It's what we're responsible to do. But what's so interesting in the Bible is we find that human beings don't love God appropriately. They don't love each other appropriately. We see it in our experiences. And then the Bible starts to help us understand these things. Not starts, it really does when it says things like this about Christianity. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave us His Son. So, it's one of the things that makes Christianity different from every other religion. We might join others saying, love is the answer. We might mean different things, but we'll, we'll join in with all of humanity basically saying love is the answer. But the problem ends up being not that we love God enough or better or with more zeal because we never will be able to because we're sinful. So it's not that we love God, but that He loved us. He's the initiator. He's the, he's the first mover, if you will. He's the one that acts. And He loved us and gave us His Son. What's so interesting about all of that is then Jesus comes and does all of the right things. He fulfills that obligation for us. Then of loving God and neighbor. Then he goes to the cross voluntarily as a substitute, as a sacrifice to pay the penalty, to atone for our rebellion, for our not loving God appropriately and our not loving neighbor appropriately so that we could be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled, so that we could be restored. So God loves first through giving his son. Jesus loves his own, like in John chapter 10, and he gives his life for us. It's amazing how it all starts to fit together. And you know, it really is about love. And then Jesus calls us who belong to him, those who believe in him to now love appropriately by the power of the spirit in response of what he has done. You see, it is all about love. In the 13th chapter of the gospel according to John, We learn about this love from Jesus and He's going to love and He's going to love to the very end, faithfully, uniquely. He's going to be the loyal one giving Himself up for those who would believe in Him. And then in chapter 14, the latter part, we are called to love in response. We're called to love Jesus because He loved us first. We're called to love each other, even in chapter 13, but also in 14, because Jesus loved us and he's going to give us his spirit to empower that love. So this morning, we're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about our love in response to God's love for us. But we've got to keep things in the right order, okay? So this morning, we're going to talk about love, what Jesus has to say about love, 
to those of us who profess to love Him. Okay? So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to follow an outline, and the outline will be nine expected responses from all who love Jesus. So nine expected responses from all who love Jesus, from all who profess to be, to be Christians. We've looked at the first four of these. I'm going to just quickly review them, and then we'll look at the remaining five this morning, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which reminds us about God's love for us in Christ, tangible, that it wasn't just the thought that counts. Real redemption, real salvation, real reconciliation. Nine expected responses from all who love Jesus. Number one, do what He says. Do what Jesus says. John 14, verse 15, it says, If you love me, this is Jesus speaking, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And in chapter 13, the big strong commandment was that you would love each other. You belong to me, you love me, you're one of my disciples, he says to his disciples. I want you to love each other. And they've already seen glimpses of how unlovable they are even amongst their own group. It's not like they're all perfect and doing the right thing already. No, Jesus says, I want you to love each other if you love me. This is going to be hard and challenging and and extraordinary, but it's what he calls them to do. Please notice also when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I can't stress this enough in light of the big picture of John. That sounds an awful lot like who? Like God. That's a God kind of statement. God is the one who has commandments. God is the one who can tell people what to do with authority. And Jesus has divine authority as the unique one from chapter 1 and all throughout the book to be able to say such amazing things. He's worthy of our devotion, obedience, following His commandments. A second expected response from all who love Jesus, so I would want to put myself in that category. Hopefully that's true of most, if not many, if not most of you. Number two, love and obey in light of His love. Love and obey in light of His love. That's what chapter 13 really set up and chapter 3 set up for us. We're not going to take the time to review that this morning as far as looking at the actual text. Number three. Expected response from all who love Jesus. Know that help is on the way. Know that help is on the way. This is in verses 16 and following, and we won't take the time to read them this morning, but 16 and 17 and 18. The help is the Spirit. How in the world are we going to love people like Peter? How in the world are we going to love people like you name it? And how in the world are we going to love people that we know who aren't perfect and who don't don't love us the way we think we should be loved? How in the world are we going to do this? And Jesus talks about giving the helper, the Holy Spirit, to uniquely empower. Jesus isn't leaving and abandoning us to be able to somehow do this all on our own. It might be one thing when Jesus is there, but now He's going to be gone. He's been getting them ready for His departure. This is crisis time. This is going to be terrible. They've been with Jesus and now Jesus is gone. How in the world are we supposed to do anything? 
know that help is on the way. There's empowerment. There's assistance. There's enablement. Power. Number four, the fourth expected response from all who love Jesus. Know that you have a truly personal relationship with God. He wants them, and by extension us, to to know that we have a truly personal relationship with God. In verses 19 to 23, he says some of the most amazing things. Some of the most absolutely amazing things about God's care and love for us. Things like this. If you look down just by way of review to verse 23. How about the end of 23? Jesus says, we will come to him. This is the one who believes. The believer, the you or the me. We will come to him and make our home with him. So, the eternal God, the God of the universe, the God who's made himself known, the God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, the God who is sovereign, the God who is holy, the God who is righteous. Jesus says, we, we, we will come to you. Remember then when Jesus is saying this, the temple is there and still running full swing. That's where you go to meet God with all of the pomp and circumstance and all of the things that are happening. And here Jesus says, no, things are changing. Chapter 4 told us that. And we, intimacy, care, concern, personalness, we're we're going to abide in you. We're we're, going to be right there. It, it, it's meant to be a, you know, does not compute moment. It's meant to overwhelm us. This is how God cares for us and how He loves us and, and we would want to respond in love because God, God, God does this. And, and I like to emphasize, and He emphasized, we're not going to go back to the exact text, this is something you have to know. Because Jesus doesn't really elaborate and say things like, and it is going to feel awesome. You're not going to have any problems. You're always going to be happy. And everything's going to go perfectly for you. Circumstances are great because the Father and I are going to come to you, read between the lines, through the person of the Spirit. No, tragedy's going to strike. He's been getting them ready for His tragic death. And He's been getting them ready, and He's going to keep getting them ready, even for their tragic circumstances. So we don't want to just be people who know things. But we have to make sure we are people who know things. Jesus is preparing their hearts, yes, but he's preparing their their intellect to, to grasp this is how it is. It might not feel like it. I might not feel close to God when they're crucifying me like my Lord. But you've got to know, I'm thinking of Matthew 28 now, I am with you always to the very end to the very end. So I want to encourage you this morning to make sure that you know things. We need to know that Jesus promised. Jesus, the one who came here and made God known to human beings, chapter 1. And He promised those who believe in Him that He and His Father would come and uniquely, personally dwell 
in us. And the context would have it be through the power of the Spirit. So you can take it, we can, you can have everything taken away from you. Just go, you can make the list, whether it's your health or your possessions or your family or your friends or your relationships and all of those things that make us feel terrible, all those things that truly are bad. But what we're encouraged to do is make sure we have the right perspective. Even when Jesus is gone from them, he's saying, my father and I, we're dwelling in you. Now let's go to number five and look at some new stuff. Number five, fifth expected response from all who love Jesus. Number five, understand, so again, another intellect thing, understand the difference between believer and unbeliever. Understand the difference between believer and unbeliever. This is the negative side. How about verse 24? Look at verse 24 with me there. Whoever... Jesus says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. We're going to look at the next portion in a second, but let's just pause there for a moment. Jesus says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It's kind of common sense. It's negative. And he certainly means, and we're going to see, he means, so if, if you're, you don't keep my words, it's evidence that you don't love me. I mean, they just go hand in hand. If you love me, because I've loved you first, context of 13 and 14, if you love me, then you keep my words, my commandments. You're going to do what I say. And that shows, that gives evidence that you love me and that you understand my love for you. Again, it's pretty strong for him to be saying such things. I mean, a mere human being to say such things would, would be worthy of being seen as crazy. But he's proven who he is, so he's anything but crazy. Understand the difference between believer and unbeliever. And then let's keep going. The next sentence in verse 24, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So what he's getting at there is what? I'm not a rogue prophet. I, I'm not the guy who's gone off, you know, the deep end. No, just know that I'm going to tell you to do these things, and if you do what I say, then you show that you love me. But just so you know, these, these, these aren't my words, merely my words. I'm, I'm with the Father in this. Or maybe we should say, the Father is with me in this. We're together in this. And Jesus has emphasized this throughout and he's just re-emphasizing it here. How about, what's the takeaway? The, the takeaway is, if, if I say I'm a Christian, and I do, I belong to Christ, it's another way of saying I love Christ because he loved me. If I say that, then, then I want to do what he says. Because what he says, God says. And it would be crazy to not listen to God. Crazy. So, that's all. And by the way, he has called himself the truth. Everything he says is going to be true. It's going to be accurate. It's going to be best. It's going to be logical. It's going to be fitting. It's going to be... I mean, all of the things that would be positive, certainly they are. 
Not only that, he's the one who came here and made God known to us. He's the one who is wisdom. He's the creator, sovereign, ultimately. So it just makes sense. I'm a Christian, so I want to do what Christ says. And how about this? As we try to think through what's true and what's not true, and there are all the different voices speaking to us, different religions. This is the one, this Jesus, who has been saying since chapter 2, and will show it to be the case, even in our text, who's raised from the dead. As if we haven't had enough opportunity to find him believable. We've had plenty of opportunity to find him believable. But he's going to be raised from the dead. So whatever Jesus says is gospel truth. (laughs) It's like, okay, of course. That just makes sense. So I, I just made myself a little list here. What I believe about God is what Jesus says. What I believe about heaven is what Jesus says. What I believe about sin and forgiveness is what Jesus says. What I believe about love is what Jesus says. And we could put it in the negative. What is contrary to what Jesus says about God, forgiveness, redemption, heaven, hell, love. I'm a Christian, so I don't don't accept those things. This is super helpful. But sometimes we forget, oh, fundamental, most basic, most elementary Oh, we're, we're Christians. We're, we're believing, resting, trusting in Jesus who paid for our sins and was raised from the dead. And whatever he says goes. That's it. That's pretty practical. Now, it might get you in trouble, but it'll keep you sane. What I, what I believe about God, heaven, hell, forgiveness, love. Oh, let's take a hot topic that I have to fall back on Jesus. Gender. I mean, I don't really really have a choice. I'm a Christian and Jesus said, it's this way since the beginning in Matthew 19, and a man and a woman in marriage... um, if you love me, you keep my commandments, and you abide in my word, well, that, that's what I believe. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Okay. So I, I, don't try, I try not to get in big arguments. I just say, well, you know, I, I'm a Christian. And so I believe Jesus was raised from the dead, and so he's the ultimate authority on everything because no one else has done that. And uh, this is what he says in Matthew 19. The great news is there's forgiveness for all different kinds of sin and all different kinds of people. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but the only way I can keep my mind and my sanity and my relationship with my God is to say what he says. Super helpful. Remember, we're learning things that are appropriate for people who love Jesus. It's appropriate for you if you love Jesus to understand the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. It's fitting. It's, it's called for. Let's go to another one, number six. Sixth expected response from all who love Jesus. 
Know that the Holy Spirit will teach you. Know that the Holy Spirit will teach you. Let's go ahead and look at verses 25 and following. 25 and 26. How about 25? These things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you while I am still with you. He's leaving. 26. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, that means he's going to carry out his work under his authority, in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That, that's a huge statement. It, it's so huge what Jesus is promising them that sometimes we even, we, it becomes overwhelming and even confusing. How could he promise that? What's interesting is, is first of all, to follow the, the, the flow of things, it's been, this is what God says, and Jesus says, this is what I say, and it's the same thing. I'm not the rogue prophet. I'm not teaching something new or different. And so we would expect the same thing. He's going to come, and he, I'm going to send him in my name. So whatever we expect from the Holy Spirit, it's not like, okay, we had something from the Father, and then we had a change with the Son, and now we have something different with the Spirit. No, He's being sent in His name. If if anything, if you want to use the big word, there's continuity. The Spirit's going to come, and He's going to continue on my ministry, my mission, moving things forward. Jesus keeps going out of His way, like in chapter 7, verse 16, to make sure He's saying the same thing as the Father. Now the Spirit is going to teach, and He's going to teach the same things to His disciples. Now sometimes we read verses 25 and 26, or they're read to us, and we get intimidated, right? Your your friend who is is a mystic, or who, who acts like they're, they're some kind of mystic, or, or, or your friend who's charis- into charismatic theology. And they read these verses to you, and you're just like, oh, no. Just give me to John 15, you know. I'll, let's talk John 10. I mean, let, let's go some other place, but let's just, let's just get out of John 14. I'm just inviting you and encouraging you to reclaim the verses. This is, this is wonderful. This isn't some kind of call for mysticism. If anything, you've had the emphasis of the Father. Nothing new with the Son. Further revelation, yes, but, but nothing inherently different. And now it's going to be, he, the Spirit sent in my name, so it's nothing inherently different either. I'm not intimidated by that. How about thrilled by that? And He's going to teach, and He's going to lead and bring to remembrance all of these things. This is awesome. This is helpful. As one commentator said, therefore the Spirit's mission is the continuation of Jesus' mission. Now I want to ask you to join me in thinking through how we understand the gravity of this, the significance of it. And I think this is pretty important. Let's start with talking about the immediate audience, the disciples. Judas is gone. Then let's move toward talking about the church and and those who came after them. Then let's talk about us. Okay? I think there's application in all three. Let's start here. Let's start with the disciples. They're the ones hearing Jesus say this for the first time. And he says to the disciples, Oh, the disciples are the would-be apostles. 
They're going to become the apostles. Apostles are people who speak with the authority of the ones they represent. So when, when we read John, an apostle of Jesus, he speaks with the authority of Jesus, which is a huge ask. So these will become those people. Well, guess what? They're told and promised they're going to be brought to remembrance all the things Jesus taught. That's really important if you're an apostle. You really need to, when you say, thus says the Lord, not be blowing smoke. They're going to need to remember what He taught. They're going to need to remember because right now they can't quite see straight. Right? They they don't have the full picture of the whole gospel narrative unpacked yet. Jesus has been telling telling them how it's going to end. But the, the puzzle's still being put together, so to speak, and they're not seeing the forest. So let's first, and I say foremost, leave it there. We're going to get here and here in a minute, I promise. He's making the promise to them, and they really need to be able to remember everything. Because they're the ones who are going to write this gospel account. Let's start there. Supernatural divine enablement by the power of the Spirit that they would be able to remember and understand. Super important. That's super important even when it comes to the, to, to the fact that we're going to have a Bible written down with accuracy. Got to remember these things. Not only remember the historical events, but even be taught by the Spirit w- what they mean. See how important that is? That's a huge promise. Huge promise. Now let's move here and talk about even early church, earlier church, opening days, book of Acts, following the book of Acts, early centuries. Did those people have the Holy Spirit? Or did He just come for us? Of course they had the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see elsewhere that the Spirit's promised to every believer, not only to those early disciples. But they had the Spirit too. I, I find that tremendously important to remember. I find that tremendously important to remember because they weren't inspired, but they had the Spirit and they had the Bible and they had fights and debates. And all the more reason to say, I wonder what they concluded, those people who were empowered by the Spirit. It's all the more reason why I'm more and more drawn toward studying historical theology. We don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. It's one reason why I I generally don't think there's anything new to understand. Maybe. But see, the thing that makes me so nervous is when someone says, Pastor, I've never seen that before. And I don't go, awesome, I came up with something new. If anything, I want to go, oh, no. The Holy Spirit's been working since the very beginning, but uniquely, extraordinarily, after Jesus ascends, you'd think that Christianity could have a pretty good understanding on Christology by now. In fact, maybe for a long time. It helps us understand nothing new under the sun. There's so many settled issues. But so many times we act like, even if we're not, we act like arrogant, prideful mystics. And it's just me and the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to start making things up. 
better to find out, okay, it's not ultimate authority, only the Bible is, but how has the Spirit led other people before? It would be good to know that. And then we come to us. And we come to us and we say, all right, it might not be just like this, and this wasn't just like this. Sorry if you're just listening and you don't understand my hand motions, but... Because we're more like these guys. But I do know that there is promise for us to learn too by the power of the Spirit. And even if I don't want to use this passage, I know in 1 John we're taught that believers, Joe Schmoes like me, are taught by the Spirit. So I'm encouraged by this too. Spirit's going to teach. Spirit's going to lead. We're not left as orphans. Maybe just one more thing about all of this. It's so interesting where we try to say maybe God is one thing and then things changed with, with Jesus, which is not true. And now the Spirit and now, you know, it's like anything goes. How about even in our context? Jesus is talking about my commandments, what my word says, my word, my commandments. And then we have the Spirit. Who's going to be in conflict with that? The Spirit who gives us inspired Scripture? No. Whatever the Spirit is going to tell me, teach me, lead me into, it's going to perfectly fit with the commandments and words of Jesus. Right? This is an awesome text. I love this extraordinary, exceptional, special kind of promise. Let's go to number seven. Expected response from all who love Jesus. Number seven. Accept the unique peace given by the Spirit. Accept the unique peace given by the Spirit. How about verse 27? Jesus says, peace. If he were speaking in Hebrew here, it would be shalom, which we've all heard. Peace. I leave with you. Which is super interesting because in chapter 14, he's talking about leaving. So he's leaving, but he's leaving them with peace, not turmoil is the idea. My peace, it's personal, it comes from him. I give to you, I think in the context, I give to you my peace via the Spirit. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. I'm, I'm bestowing on you. I'm gifting you this unique, special peace. I think specifically the Spirit. You, you, you have peace with God through what I'm going to give you. But because you have that peace with God, I'm going to give you this comfort, this encouragement, this blessing that comes amidst turmoil, amidst difficulty, and it's mine I'm giving to you. Not like the world's. What kind of peace does the world offer you? I think he's using that in a generic unbeliever sense, sometimes well-meaning. The world gives you this kind of peace when you get the bad news, or you feel bad, or you fail, or you're crushed, 
the world says things like, it'll be okay. Based upon what? It'll be okay? But what if it's not okay? How, how, how does someone know enough and have the right... I mean, let's just put it in the negative, even though people mean well, the audacity to tell me it'll be okay. When we're standing around the casket, it didn't end okay. It'll be okay. It'll turn out in the end. Or maybe we want to dress it up with some spirituality now that we don't really have a, a kind of Christian conscience. We just say things like, just have faith. Have faith in what? That's the world's peace. And you know, I get it. If that's all you have, and I, and I like it that people, you know, when they hear we're facing tragedy, they don't say, we hate you. Right? I mean, I'm kind of glad, right, that when someone hears about a, a tragedy in my life, they don't say, it's not going to be okay, right? I, I, I don't want that. So, but for shock value, let's understand the world's peace is an empty promise, not based upon anything objective or real. It's like faith in faith. I've been sending you my thoughts. Meaner things have been said. But that's not the kind of peace you need. And that's not the kind of peace that Jesus gives. Jesus is giving his peace and it is objective. Oh, maybe it's not objective. Scratch that. It's subjective because I experience it. But it's based upon the objective work that he is doing when he says this, that he's going to do when he goes to Calvary, that he's going to do when he conquers sin and the grave and is raised from the dead, right? And he ascends and he sends his tangible spirit so he, even though I might not feel it, tangibly, he and his father make their abode in me. Peace. That's, that's, that's true, substantive, carry me all the way to the very end kind of shalom. When you fail me, when others fail me, when no one's there, when I'm all alone, or you are, there is this unique supernatural. Remember, Jesus is leaving them. And here's the best thing I can leave you with. You see, we have to remember this. In so many ways, you know, this is like the, the, the best thing we, any of us could hear today in this broken world. Because it puts things in perspective. It's not the quick fix. I, I understand that. But he really is helping. Well, I've... We could, we could talk about Old Testament prophetic writings promising the Messiah who would come, who publishes peace. 
and brings good news, gospel news, peace comes with it. Isaiah 52, 7, we don't really have time. But I love seeing this in light of chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Our ultimate outcome is secure. Remember there, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Tangible, real, not made up. It's no wonder he can give us his peace because ultimate outcomes have been settled. And I just want you... I want want you to live there. I want to live there and have this in our minds. I mean, I don't want to just beat beat the same drum, but I'm going to. This really is what we all need to know and remember. And and sometimes we, we, we get bent out of shape because, you know, that wasn't very practical. What's not very practical is me figuring out ways to tell you everything's going to be okay when it's not. But it is. In Christ, ultimately, in the end. Okay, number eight. Expected response from all who love Jesus is a proper perspective. A proper perspective. And I think we've already seen a proper perspective, but let's at least see in verse 28 where, where he reiterates and emphasizes this. This is fascinating. Look at 28 with me if you would. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. They weren't rejoicing. They didn't like it. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. The Father is greater than I. Again, take that verse out of context and start a cult. Don't really. But he's been emphasizing throughout that they're together, they're one, they're, they're equal in, we would say in fancy terms, they're equal in, in essence. They have different roles. But, the, but that's not even the point here. The point here is, I told you I was going to leave and come back. And you guys are, you know, what, did you leave us as orphans and you didn't care about me? And only, you know. No, if you would have loved me, if you really would have gotten it, you would have rejoiced. I'm going to the Father. And that's the best place to be going. To the Father's house. Ultimate, ultimate reality. And if you would have really loved me and you weren't just thinking about yourselves, which we all do, you would have said, oh, this is awesome because that's the best place to go. See, Paul understood this, right, in chapter 1. Probably not when he was first a Christian, but as he matured and grew. Absent from the body? What? Present with the Lord. To live as Christ? Paul says, to die is gain. It's the same kind of thing. It's the ultimate to be with the Father. So I think Jesus is rebuking their selfishness here, but it also gives us an, gives us an opportunity to see, to see, oh, proper perspective. They were, they were being short-sighted. Okay, finally, number nine. Expected response from all who love Jesus. And that's this. Know that Satan has no claim on Jesus. You need to know that Satan has no claim on Jesus. 
I love this point. It's super confusing. And it's out there and it makes no sense. But it's going to. What does it have to do with my life that Satan has no claim on Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to get to that. And it's awesome that Satan has no claim on Jesus. And it affects your life. But he wants them to know. This is, this is so phenomenal. He wants them to know that Satan has no claim on him. And that's good for him. But it's good for them too. Let's go, let's go ahead and read it. It says in verse 29, And now I have told you before it takes place, he wants them to understand so they can interpret history even before it happens, so that when it does take place, you may believe, you may trust, confide in me. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world, he's referring to Satan, the ruler of this world is coming, he has no claim on me. That's, that's legality. That's law talk, legal talk. Satan has no legal claim on me. The ruler of this world, let's keep reading, it gets better. But I do as the Father has commanded me. Oh, by the way, that right there is why Satan has no legal claim on him. Because I do, it says, but I do as the Father has commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Ha ha ha, that's how he has no Claim on him, I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Do you see what's happening? Some of you do. Some of you are like, I don't get it. Encouraging words to those who would believe in Jesus. Wonderfully encouraging. I want you to know, he's going to be killed, he's going to be crucified. Satan has no claim on me. Because, I'm paraphrasing now, I do what the Father commands. So that everyone will see that I love the Father. Are you, are you getting closer yet? He will be, here you go, he will be raised from the dead. Satan has no claim on him. He's going to be crucified even though he's sinless. He's only ever always done what's right, which is love his Father with heart, soul, mind, and strength, I would add, just to help you make some dot, connect some dots. He's always only ever done that. He's always only ever loved God, his Father, and therefore Satan has no claim on him in his death. Therefore, he has to, no matter what, absolutely be raised from the dead because it would be unjust. It would be wrong. It would be a violation of legal claim for him to stay dead because the wages of sin is death. Are you getting closer yet? This is what we talked about on Easter here when we looked at 1 Timothy and we talked about vindication. The vindication of Jesus. The justification of Jesus. We won't go there now. 1 Timothy 3.16. It used to be something Christians talked about all the time. No legal claim. Wrong for him to stay dead. He always did what was right. Now, finally, I promise, what makes this good news to you? Because if you believe in Jesus, you trust in Jesus, you're united to Him, and now His vindication 
is yours. Ah, it would be wrong for you to stay dead. Place in the Father's house, it's come full circle. It's a guaranteed that you're going to be resurrected and occupy a place in the Father's house if you're believing in Jesus because Satan has no claim on him. Death has no claim on him. And if you believe in Jesus, death has no claim on you. It would be wrong for, I could start naming names, but I won't, you to stay dead. This is, this is amazing. He's always, it's amazing. He's always done all that the Father has commanded. See, again, we, we put the pieces together and we can, we can say things like, this is why the shalom that Jesus leaves them with is so very, very, very different than just have faith. I'm sending you happy thoughts. <laughs> no. I'm going to leave you with a peace that is the peace you need. <laughs> Satan has no claim on me. Read between the lines. The apostles will develop this because they're going to remember everything because of the blessing of the Spirit. He's got no claim on you either. So good. So good. So we are told by Jesus, until he comes back, to be reminded of this again and again and again and again. Not that we love God, he loved us, and now that we have been loved, we want to love in response, both him and others. But we've got to get the story in the right order, or it's somebody else's story. And so he says, take bread and wine, do this in remembrance of me. So we need to remember today that Christ has been vindicated, therefore we benefit and our vindication is sure. And our love comes as a result of that in light of that. So pray with me and then we're going to eat and then we're going to drink. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he loved us and gave himself up for us. Thank you that you loved us and gave your son. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we might know these things. Thank you that we have the Spirit. Other Christians have had the Spirit. The disciples have the Spirit uniquely and even as apostles. Thank you that we can be here this morning and step back from all of the sometimes chaos of life and to be able to remember that Jesus Christ lived, died, and was raised from the dead and he did all of these things for us so that we might uniquely relate to you as you uniquely relate to us. Please use our eating and our drinking to remind us of the greatness of Christ. Please accompany us even through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would supernaturally work in our midst so that we would remember these things and we would be encouraged and we would be built up in the faith that we would not be weak Christians we would be able to understand these things and know these things and even be able to help other people. In Jesus' name, amen.